Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are continuing our two-parter on the Gospel of Luke. So in the last episode, we covered um, just sort of general questions about Luke's authorship and concerns and interests or lack of interest relationship to Mark and Matthew. And we talked about especially the unique first two chapters about the conception and birth of John and Jesus. So today we will be getting into unique Lucan material, especially parables and a few narrative episodes that are not in the other two Gospels. Dad, how would you like to frame us going forward in this episode? Well, I think our listeners should have a deep appreciation for the wealth of material that Luke has sought out and recorded for us. Uh, of course, he, Luke is not a historian in the modern sense of the word, uh, because he writes as much as a hagiographer, as a chronicler of events. Uh, but certainly from a theologically interested point of view, he opens the gospel by saying to Theophilus that he wants to write undertaken to put down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. That's a little bit of a loaded language, the events that have been fulfilled among us. Uh, Something has happened in the event of Jesus Christ, which is a fulfillment. And that fulfillment that has taken place needs to be carefully investigated to write uh, a proper account of it so that it's saving import can be communicated uh, to one and to all who read the gospel. And so Luke has actually done this. He's actually researched and discovered, as we'll now mention, parables, teachings, and narrative episodes uh, that are only found in Luke and how much poorer we would be if he had not done this great work for us. You know, Dad, that reminds me, ages and ages ago, I um, knew some people who worked in the radio division of Focus on the Family, you know, this conservative evangelical outfit, and they were telling me how they had done a radio drama of Luke traveling around the Mediterranean and collecting the stories that he would Uh include in the Gospel and Acts, and how happy they were they got away with it. And I was like, what do you mean? Because I was in seminary and thinking like, well, you know, who knows how historically accurate Luke really is. But they said the reason it was such a risky thing to do is because it implied that Luke actually did on the ground research instead of sitting at his desk and letting the Holy Spirit dictate every movement of his quill on parchment. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Right? Un- unfortunately, that that dictation theory is still... Uh, current in certain circles, but it, boy, what a, how it destroys the literary uh, nature of the Gospels and how it uh, actually undermines the, the, the genuine historicity of the Gospel accounts. All right. Well, we will pass over that now with silence. Let's go on to Luke's unique material. So um, Jesus tells parables uh, in the other two synoptics or enigmas, as you like to call it, in the Gospel of John. But Luke has a whole bunch of parables that are unique to him, um, just to list them off quickly. And these are is like practically a, a top 10 um, all-star hits of Jesus. There is the Good Samaritan story, the friend at midnight, the rich man who builds bigger barns, uh, the fig tree, which actually in Mark and Matthew is a narrative episode. In Luke, it becomes a parable instead. There is, of course, in chapter 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son or lost sons or prodigal son or prodigal father. uh, So important of a story that it continually gets renamed as people try to shift the emphasis of its meaning. There is the dishonest steward. I would just like to say I wrote a paper on that for Don Jewell when I was in seminary, which I think I subtitled in which Sarah Henlicky gives up because trying to figure out what the heck the dishonest steward parable about is uh, almost a lost (laughs) cause, which I didn't know when I chose it to write about. 
Uh, the rich man and Lazarus, the unscrupulous judge and the persistent widow, and finally the publican and the sinner uh, who uh, who went home justified. So that's that's all unique Lucan material. Where do you want to dive in there, Dad? Boy, there uh, so many. These parables are are so important. The Good Samaritan uh, for its transgression of ethnic boundaries. Uh, and it's turning the question of who is my neighbor from the passive sense into the active one, who was a neighbor to the man in need, the rich fool who built a bigger barn and his life was required of him, kind of uh, puts in a nutshell the gospel of Luke's critique of trust in wealth, trust in riches, the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, uh, portray this seeking, finding uh, work of, of God uh, and the joy in heaven that occurs when what has been lost to God is found. Your brother was dead, but now he is alive, you know, and the, just the joy of the father in the restoration of the lost son. Again, the rich man and Lazarus, my goodness, what a powerful illustration of Jesus's categorical attack on human covetousness, human greed. And what's so striking is that the rich man in torment is not sorry for his sin. He's only sorry <laughs> no. for he's sorry for his sorrow, he's sorrow for his punishment. And he hasn't changed a look. He's telling Abraham, tell that beggar to get down here with some water. Just like his sense of superiority went wholly uncorrected by the punishment that he was experiencing. Yeah, purgatory doesn't work. I would just like to say that I um, sometimes when I preach, I, I present myself as the character in the story to kind of give it a more immediacy. So usually I do, you know, good characters, you know, like Mary Magdalene or Cleopas on the road to Emmaus, you know, people you're supposed to identify with. But one time I decided to try being the bad guy. So I I presented myself as the rich man suffering in hell. And, uh, you know, I just showed him myself, unrepentant from beginning to end. And like you said, still trying to order around Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And it just ended, you know, with the rich man still in hell. That one did not go over very well. <laughs> that from the pulpit, do not present unsympathetic characters. Stick with the sympathetic ones. <laughs> okay. Well, you see what, and of course, I did the last one that we have to mention is the the uh, publican uh, and the hypocritical uh, Pharisee as, as portrayed in that parable. Uh, uh, that the, it's, it's the one who knows his sinfulness that goes down to his house justified, uh, while the attitude of superiority uh, on the part of the other one is exposed as the greatest uh, 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 sinfulness of all. Just thinking back to the way I was raised with these stories, and presumably you were the main preacher I was hearing in my childhood because you were mostly the pastor when I was growing up. But there, there's, it's so easy to read these stories about Pharisees, again, as bad Jews. But I always got the, the message that I heard from church overall was that Pharisees were just the example at the time of the universal problem of the sanctimonious good person. And that's, you know, this was not about Judaism. This was about everybody. Was that a conscious shift that you made or was that how you were also raised to think about these things i'm just curious yeah i think for me it was you know i i belong to the first theological generation that had to come to terms with the holocaust as the fruit of centuries of christian anti-judaism and i remember being taught in seminary uh, you know, just to put it a little humorously, that Pharisees were good guys. You, you would like them as neighbors. They would make good neighbors, you know. And would you really want to have some of these ne'er-do-wells that Jesus hangs out with? Would you like them to be your neighbors? I don't think so. That I mean, I was a seminary professor. I don't recall which one. Maybe it was Ralph Klein uh, uh, put it that way to us, and uh, uh, or Bob Smith. I can't recall 
uh, who it was, but but uh, explained uh, that uh, the Pharisees get a bad rap, uh, primarily from the Gospel of, uh, actually from the Gospel of Matthew in the 22nd or 23rd chapter, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, a long diatribe of Jesus against them. I think Luke has that too. But yeah, well, I mean, it's easy to get a bad rap on Pharisees, though there are some sympathetic Pharisees in Luke's gospel. And like we said, they are not part of Jesus' crucifixion story at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the parables are immense, immense riches and it would it would be of course fascinating to try to understand them in their original situation in the life of Jesus, because uh, uh, certainly uh, Luke has, uh, like all the material that goes back to Jesus, it has been uh, enhanced and modified in the course of its telling and retelling, until Luke finally puts it down on paper for mm. us. Right. Just two comments that I would like to make about the famous ones. In the Good Samaritan parable, this again is often interpreted as horrible Judaism with its Torah laws, and that's why the priest and the Levite pass by the injured man. Um, it's probably just that they were rotten people who had no compassion. There actually is no purity law preventing either of them from dealing with a corpse or a near corpse. And if anything, there's a moral imperative in in Jewish practice to see to it that a corpse is properly buried. They did not expose their corpses, they buried them. So to uh, interpret the Good Samaritan as being awful Jewish laws versus inclusive Jesus is uh, one of those classic um, misreadings of, of what the story is about. It, it really is just about caring for your neighbor. And Jesus provocatively makes the hero of the story a Samaritan, but not because Samaritans didn't have these laws. They had purity and religious laws just as much. They were a, right. you know, a, yeah. a rival religion to Judaism, but very close to it. This is, again, more of an internal conflict than a you know, law-free religion versus legalistic religion in any respect. You could even uh, uh, push that a little further, that the Samaritans' scripture was only the Torah of Moses. They had no other oh, right, scripture right. Right, than the Torah of Moses. So you, you can uh, quote the Psalms like Satan to get away with uh, <laughs> abandoning your, your duties, right? That's that's a really good point. And I, I think probably also one of Luke's bigger intentions in here is to uh, set up the conversion of the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. That although it doesn't, it cannot happen literally and historically in the gospel because Luke needs it to be only to the, you know, the lost tribes of Israel here. Um, it's preparing you sort of like mentally, imaginatively for when the Samaritans will believe in volume two. Right, right. Okay, uh, the other well, thing a... is um, my my teacher, Don Jewell, was uh, almost famous for his, his way of um, interpreting the parable of the prodigal son or prodigal father or lost sons or or grumpy older brother <laughs> however you you want to put that and I, again this this might be a generational shift I guess historically or traditionally people have looked at themselves as the prodigal I once was lost but now I'm found you know uh, who have wandered away from God but God you know welcomes you back again um, conveniently overlooking the fact that the son seems kind of like um, the rich man in, in hell in the Lazarus parable he, not actually sure if he's repentant or just really tired of eating the same food as the pigs. And so he like figures out how he can manipulate his father's emotions. Uh, but in the end, the manipulation doesn't matter because the father's love for his son, you know, simply overwhelms him regardless of the sincerity of his repentance. But um, Don Jewell drew uh, my attention, I swear I never noticed before, first to the fact that the older brother is not at all happy about this. In fact, he's really, really, really pissed off and pouty and resentful and... Um, and just kind of drew out that, again, uh, this this theme of the resentment of the good person towards mercy for the ne'er-do-well. And again, how, how powerfully that probably strikes home with church people more often than the, oh, once I was lost, but now I was found. I mean, obviously those people are, are present in the faith too. But the other thing that I remember Don Jewell saying that struck home is he was saying, you know, how, how is this a truly Christological parable? Because Jesus is neither the younger 
younger son, nor the older son. Who is he? He is the calf who was slaughtered for the feast. <laughs> that's how he would wrap up that interpretation. But I think that's very profound that, um, that somebody dies and feeds the feast with his own flesh. And that in that way, the, the uh, sacrificial Christ is present in this parable. That always blew me away. Wow. Yeah, I never heard that before. That's powerful. Yeah. So you mentioned, of course, uh, Luke is famous for being very concerned with matters of wealth. And I think you put it really precisely when you said it, Luke critiques covetousness but he and greed, but he doesn't necessarily critique wealth. And it's worth noting, you know, I, I guess I had sort of absorbed like this lightweight liberationist principle that the gospel of Luke or maybe all the gospels was really for the poor and not for the rich. And it's about the poor and to the poor and for the poor. But if you read Luke closely, the whole economic scale is present. And Luke is addressing itself not only negatively, but also positively, challengingly for sure, but positively towards people with wealth. So, for example, like in the uh, famous story of the sisters Mary and Martha, if you pay attention, they're very well-to-do. They don't have men in their lives, but Martha apparently is a homeowner and she's wealthy enough to host Jesus, feed him, keep him there for the night. And you know, there's the synagogue ruler and the centurion. And I mean, there's all sorts of, of people in the story who are well-to-do. So part of Jesus' teaching is, yes, warning against greed and covetousness, both in direct teaching as well as in the parables. But it's not to criticize wealth per se. It's the bad use of it. Uh, it reminds me of how people always misquote First uh, Timothy 6 by saying money is the root of all evil. Uh, more accurate is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil is a more accurate way of putting it. Wealth per se is not the problem. It's how humans misuse it. That's the problem. Very good, Sarah. And I think that is corroborated. Your reading is corroborated by one of my favorite passages from the teaching of Jesus in Luke, chapter 14, verses 12 uh, to 14. Let me just read this because it's a, a passage that's very dear to me, and it corroborates what you were just saying. Uh, Jesus also said to one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon on a, or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I just love that passage for a number of reasons. Um, uh, first of all, it corroborates your point that Jesus is talking to people who are capable of throwing a dinner party. You know, they're not, they're, these are not poor folks. These are people who have, have resources uh, to, to give a lavish dinner. And then he, what he warns against is the calculation that you give a gift in order to get a gift, that you give a gift in order to be repaid, rewarded. Now, there's a great deal of literature about this in contemporary philosophy, and there's an entire movement around it called Theology of the Gift, and we'll have to talk about that sometime. But it's always this argument of some sociologists, some anthropologists from some decades ago, that when they studied the exchange of, of gift giving in uh, in indigenous uh, communities, uh, pre-modern uh, communities, they argued that this is actually an economy of exchange. Do ut des. I give in order that you give. Do ut des. And so there's no such thing genuinely as a true gift without any hooks without any uh, calculations on return. Uh, Jesus recognizes that that's a lot of the practice of throwing dinner parties. Uh, and he directly and immediately confronts it with uh, the contrary idea that if you have been blessed with resources, uh, it is in order that you give them away to those who cannot repay you. 
that you give without strings attached to the uh, to the people uh, that are listed, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and so forth. And then the warrant for this lifestyle, uh, this lifestyle that renounces greed and covetousness, this lifestyle that says, if I've been blessed, it is in order to be a blessing to those who are unblessed. Uh, the, the, the resource for living this lifestyle is faith in the resurrection. I think that's very interesting for Luke, that the lifestyle of discipleship that Jesus summons us to, this renunciation of, of, the, of an economy of exchange for an economy of generosity, is predicated upon the promise of the resurrection faith in the resurrection. How is faith active in love? If I entrust myself and my earthly well-being to the care of God, up to and including my own death, uh, then I am freed uh, to use what I have uh, to give to those in need. Yes, I, I agree with that. Certainly for Christians, I would just want to say that this is not, again, a break from Torah. It's an amplification of Torah, which constantly exhorts care for the needy, the, you know, the widows and the orphans and the blinds and the suffering and so forth. So again, it's it's not like Jesus suddenly invents generosity and it's justified by the resurrection, but the resurrection is amplifying the, the Torah's fundamental commitment to caring for the, the needy generously and not in, in an exchange economy, like you said. Yep. Okay. What else about the teaching, Sarah? Well, the one that I particularly wanted to to pull out that's unique to um, Luke here, I'll, I'll read it too because it's short. It's from the beginning of chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. <laughs> Jesus is full of warnings in Luke. I had never noticed this before because, again, Luke is beautiful and full of amazing, beautiful stuff. But Jesus threads it throughout with his warnings. And um, this is one of the big ones. So I think this never ceases to be relevant no matter where you live, what culture, what religion. It is so easy to interpret disaster as divine or karmic punishments. And Jesus just slices through that and forever severs the connection between the two and says, no people who suffer horribly, you know, and this, I mean, this is so disgusting that, that Pilate would mingle the blood of Jewish worshipers with their sacrifices. I mean, this, this is like Antioch Epiphanes, the fourth level horrors. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it would it would be very easy to interpret something so overladen with political and religious significance as divine commentary. And Jesus just says no. And the same thing for, you know, a architectural problem or an earthquake. Who knows why this Tower of Siloam fell and killed people? You know, we, we so desperately want reasons and answers in response to the randomness of physics that is visited upon us. You know, when, when there's an accident, you always want some reason. Or when you get sick, you want, what lesson am I supposed to learn? And um, there certainly can be reasons and lessons, but Jesus just does not permit punishment to be divine punishment to be the answer for those things. Um, and I think that's just so important. Also, Pilate was really awful. Like we, <laughs> we know him as the guy who crucified Jesus, but he's such a weird character in the trials. He's like both passive, but has total authority at the same time. I guess I always saw him more as a, like a complicit uh, tool than anything else. But uh, I, I learned that Pilate was actually kind of notorious for being a complete jerk to the Jews, uh, the Judeans over whom he ruled, and he he would do stuff like this. And there are other like non-gospel accounts of Pilate's um, hostility and insensitivity, to say the least, to the people that he had charge over. Right. Yeah. So it's not just chaos and randomness. It's also uh, 
a precious, uh, cru- cru- oppressive cruelty and malis- malicious injustice that befalls these Galileans. It's not just chaos. It's there's, there's a certain injustice. And the link that Jesus is breaking is that the authority of Pilate to commit these legal atrocities is not divinely sanctioned. It's not, uh, it's not the work, work of God. Uh, uh, but Jesus does not give up the idea of divine punishment. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so he separates the experience of being the victim of injustice on this earth uh, from the true danger of facing the just judgment of God, right? That's one thing in this story. Uh, the other thing, I think, is to talk, Sarah, about what motivates people, uh, like you said, to uh, look for uh, um, a special reason uh, of, of sin and punishment, like the friends of Job did in the Old Testament book uh, to interpret catastrophe or suffering. Uh, what motivates people? If you have a thought on that, I have a thought, but go ahead. Well, I guess I was just thinking for our time, I think what, what you said is important because just because you are a victim of oppressive cruelty doesn't automatically make you righteous or a martyr either. Jesus doesn't praise the victims of Pilate's violence any more than he praises the people on whom the tower fell. He says, you know, everyone's going to perish unless you repent. And so the the call to repentance is universal. There's no getting out of that. Um, but there, I think they're just... Uh, maybe this is how I, I really am a, a a modern person. The threat of meaninglessness is so much more scary than right. the threat of punishment that um, I think for people in our time, at least, choosing punishment is like a bulwark against meaninglessness. What do you think? Very good. Yeah, I agree. I, and I was thinking of a one of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, pithy little uh, uh, diagnostics of our modern mentality when he said that people are so desperate for a meaning that they would rather have nothing for a meaning than no meaning at all. That they would rather have nothing for a meaning than no meaning at all. And that nothing, of course, would be something like uh, Zeus threw a thunderbolt at you because you crossed him. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, now move on to uh, Luke's unique narrative episodes in his gospel. So, of course, we already talked at length about Zechariah, Elizabeth and John and then Joseph, Mary and Jesus. Uh, But we did not finish out chapter two, which gives us our one and only canonical portrait of a young adult Jesus. So that's the boy Jesus in the temple around the age of 12. This just came up recently in uh, the lectionary and I preached on it and I could not help but wonder aloud what was Jesus like going through puberty and adolescence? There's probably a reason the Gospels just pass over this in silence. Um, (laughs) Even though we are told that Jesus was uh, like us in every way and tempted in every way, but without sin, that's just a place, again, uh, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code notwithstanding, I'm just not particularly interested in going. It is worth mentioning that there is some uh, post-canonical literature 100 or 200 years later that are proto-evangelion that tell about Jesus as a little kid. And he's such an awful kid. Like there's this one story where I don't know, like some other kid bumps into him and he like zaps him dead. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, uh. so people clearly have always been curious about what a sinless incarnate savior would have been like as a youngster. And, you know, did he keep Mary up at night with his crying? What was he like when he was teething? Did he have to be scolded or was he an angelic little child? And did the other kids like to play with him? Cause he was, you know, he was, wasn't any fun because he wouldn't wrestle. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so that was a long digression. What do you think about the boy Jesus in the temple, Dad? Well, I I think, you know, it's a story that comports with the purpose of the first two chapters, which is to locate Jesus in the messianic expectations of Israel. Uh, And and then to clarify that 
uh, here, you know, uh, 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 that he is to be found in the temple because he's a being he's busy with his father's business, and that of course is an implicit contrast to the concern of Mary and Joseph for their son. Uh, so, what we see of the human humanity of Jesus in Luke, just like in Mark, Matthew, and John is that there's just no interest whatsoever in penetrating the human psychology of Jesus. Jesus is always portrayed as a man on a mission. Uh, and uh, Paul Tillich once put this, I think, a little bit too extremely, but I think in, in a sense that kind of dramatically illustrates why Jesus is the Christ, because Tillich said he sacrifices everything that is Jesus, uh, Jesus about him to his being as the Christ. He sacrifices everything that is Jesus about him to his being as the Christ. Now, uh, I, I don't want to be stuck on Tillich's formulation there, but I think it gets after this truth that the gospel portraits of Jesus are not interested in exploring his psychology. They're only interested in this objective portrayal of Jesus as, the, in Luke, the one who is conceived and born by the power of the Spirit, and in his baptism, and then in his inaugural sermon in Nazareth, he quotes the Isaiah passage, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do the, the good works of the coming of the kingdom, right, and so forth and so on. And so Jesus, if you want to have a spirit Christology, as some people are calling this now, the Gospel of Luke is, is your uh, source. Jesus' is, uh, entire life is lived in the power of the Spirit to do his messianic work. Yeah, I think the story also signifies a couple other of Luke's concerns. One is, as I mentioned in our last episode, this moving away from the biological family to the adoptive family. And so, you know, it's Jesus' parents who lose him, thinking he's in their, you know, extended family group that traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem and back again. And when Mary finally finds him, she says what have you done to me and your father? So she uses the, you know, the human term father. And then Jesus immediately replies, did you not know I would be in my father's house? So you can, you know, he's, he's creating a distance there between them, even though then he then promptly goes on to continue to keep the fourth commandment because he's a good Jewish boy and knows he has to honor his mother and his father. But it's kind of like that first sign of the adult Jesus breakage from the, the family of origin. And then of course, the other thing is that he's lost for three days. And, you know, uh, any parent who has lost their kid for five minutes knows that you assume that they are dead in your panic. And so for all intents and purposes, Jesus is dead to Mary and Joseph until they find him alive again in the temple, which is, you know, where where God dwells and where Jesus is rightly undertaking his ministry. So whatever... I am, again, not interested in whatever historical source there is for this story, but theologically, it's doing two really important things in preparing Jesus for his public ministry. Yeah, really. Well said, Sarah. That's very interesting. All right. Well, let's jump ahead to some other unique narrative episodes. Um, an another one, speaking of, of women named Mary, <laughs> um, Luke mentions more women by name. Uh, there are named women in, in all the Gospels. Um, Mary Magdalene, of course, is a famous one, as well as Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we are told at the beginning of chapter 8 that, again, uh, a good use of wealth. Um, Jesus seems to have some wealthy female patrons who helped support him. This would have been a kind of known social institution. Um, here, I'll just read the beginning of chapter eight. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So, uh, yeah, so, and uh, there are a lot of women in this story. Uh, the most famous pair is Mary and Martha, who appear again in John's gospel. But in this case, it is their, their famous quarrel. 
Uh, Dad, what, what is your take on Mary and Martha's quarrel about the right way to receive Jesus in their home? Oh, man, why are you putting these hard ones on me, Sarah? They're going to get me in trouble with people. <laughs> uh, okay, Mary and Martha. Um, let's see. Um, I think... Would you like me to read the story to you? No, no, I just I, I want to say that uh, maybe that would be good for the readers. Go ahead, read the story. That's in 10, uh, chapter 10 it's somewhere. Yeah, chapter 10. Yeah, let me see here. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Yeah, um, I don't want to get in trouble uh, by scolding (laughs) Martha for being distracted with serving, uh, because I think the serving, uh, showing hospitality and serving uh, are, of course, wonderful things. Uh, and in fact, they're, they deeply comport with the passage from 14, chapter 14 that I read earlier about throwing a banquet for the poor, the crippled, the lame, and so forth and so on. But I think what's striking about this little episode, of course, is the fact that a woman sits at the feet of Jesus just like any other disciple. Uh, and uh, uh, listens to his teaching, takes in his teaching. Um, And at the end of the episode, Jesus uh, uh, affirms Mary's uh, choice that she has chosen the one thing needful and that this status will not be taken away from her to be a disciple at the feet of Jesus who listens and takes it in. So we have here, I think the story has a a kind of a a tension that occurs that I think every Christian feels. Uh, The tension between the domestic obligations and duties that attend us as as citizens, uh, as members of society, and the special uh, obligation we have uh, to um, give our ears only to the word of God, and let no other voices uh, distract us from it. My inclination would be to favor that reading because it's a universal reading for all people, not a story specifically by about women and for women. But one thing I've learned is that there is huge dispute among um, feminists or interpreters about whether Luke is pro-woman Uh, or not. Uh, And specifically, the question is, there are more women noted and told about, as well as by name and Luke's gospel than the others, but other than in the first two chapters, they seem to have fewer speaking parts. So I think there was initially the sense like, wow, Luke is a great resource for, you know, a kind of a pro-woman stance in the church. And then there was kind of a backlash like, well, but do they actually have leadership roles? You know, Mary listens, but she doesn't say anything. And and the women pay for Jesus, but they aren't counted as disciples. And so there's this back and forth. Um, you know, I I don't know who's right or how, how you would judge. Um, what's What I have done with this story, again, for my own setting, is um, I had, in fact, a number of church ladies said to me, why is Jesus so hard on Martha? Because they clearly identify with Martha. And I think the fact is most women in most churches, probably for most of history, have felt much more like Martha's. We all know that, you know, churches tend to be full of wonderful Martha's who uh, do a lot of um, baking of delicious sweets and keep the church clean and run the Sunday school and, and donate generously. And we also know that that Martha's can become bitter and resentful at how they serve, 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 and are never sufficiently appreciated. 
And so the way I've interpreted the story for them is is just draw on this experience of where you are so determined to perform your role well as a householder, as a host, as a cook, as um, you know, a, a, a great figure in the community that in the end you lose sight of your guest altogether. Uh, I mean, that's importing a lot into the story, but I think that's such a profound experience, as you were alluding to, of the person who, who hosts and serves and tries to make things nice for other people that in the end you can just hate your dinner guests and wish they would all go home and leave you alone <laughs> and uh, and and the need again to return to like what is the one thing necessary what will not be taken away from you so even for the the most ambitious and compassionate of servants they too just need to stop and receive um, and I think that that really tallies with the the whole message of of Luke and definitely a connection here with the epistles of Paul is that you cannot actually serve well and truly. You cannot have true compassion until you have first received from the Lord. You've received his word, his salvation, his love. The, he has to be the Samaritan who picks you up and takes you to the hospital before you are able to turn around and do anything for anyone else. To me, that I think that is the, the deepest and most important point of the story rather than being a commentary on women per se. But I think the uh, women's experience became a, a perfect occasion for for exploring that deep spiritual dilemma. Yeah, well said, sir. That's that's I think that's right on target. Um, it makes me think of 1 Corinthians thirteen, that if I give my uh, commit all, uh, if I give my very body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. Right. That that the even the lifestyle of service and and uh, of service can become a front for spiritual self-righteousness and uh, virtue signaling phoniness or something like that. This uh, uh, just section... To, just to wrap out the commentary on, on women in the Gospel of Luke, I just want to add that in the resurrection accounts, um, the women who go to Jesus' tomb are listed as Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. We haven't heard about her before and the other women with them. So that's at least five, possibly more women who who go there to uh, see Jesus. And I, as I mentioned in the last episode, there are also women who follow Jesus when he's carrying his cross and he he who are wailing over him. And he calls them daughters of Jerusalem, um, you know, which is a very resonant Old Testament term as well. So, uh, yeah, just there there are a lot of women in Luke's gospel. And um, I think um, given the impossibility of knowing for sure what Luke meant, let's interpret it in a pro-woman way rather than an silencing women way. That seems like a no-brainer to me. I, I agree. That's a no-brainer. No I want to mention something, Sarah, about this middle section of the gospel of Luke that's been very important for me. Uh, the uh, literally, if you start in chapter nine, verse fifty-two, uh, there's a kind of a transitional statement here that I think is uh, significant for how Luke organizes and presents his material. Uh, nine, Luke nine fifty-one, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, translated into English, days to be taken up. And uh, actually, in the Greek language, that's our word exodus. When the, when the time came for Jesus to pass out of Egypt on the way to the promised land, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so this entire section now leads on to the great story of Zacchaeus uh, in chapter 19, uh, where uh, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, where Zacchaeus uh, stands up, uh, he throws the banquet, and, and he is so moved by Jesus uh, singling him out uh, with favor that he throws the banquet, and at the end of the banquet he stands up and announces that he is going to repair the damage he has done to the best of his ability uh, to all the people he's cheated or defrauded as a tax collector. 
And Jesus concludes by saying, Today salvation has come to this house, for he too is a child of Abraham, or something like that. And so from 951 to chapter 19, 1 to 10, you have the journey of Jesus towards Jerusalem, which of course means that here the disciples are following him on his exodus way. And so the whole unit is about grace and discipleship. And I think it's a really powerful uh, uh, lesson in uh, showing that discipleship is not wooden, literalistic imitation of Jesus, but instead it is receiving the gift of God through Jesus. Fear not, little flock, it is, uh, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And giving you the kingdom begins with the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, for Luke, uh, in which by the finger of the Spirit, Jesus expels the demons and pronounces that the kingdom of God has come upon you. He sees uh, Satan fall like lightning from heaven because the gift of the kingdom through the gift of the Spirit is being enacted in Jesus' exodus of journey to Jerusalem. And that empowers the disciples to follow Jesus uh, through this and then to be sent on their own mission. Uh, they return from the mission and say to Jesus that even the demons obey us. Jesus says, in effect, well, of course, but don't rejoice over that. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. Uh, so this whole, uh, this whole series, uh, this whole narrative uh, uh, finally uh, zeroes in on the fact that grace is grace only for the disgraced, only for the lost, only for the helpless, only for the dying, that grace is the enemy of all self-sufficiency. In that sense, it's a militant grace that requires the extirpation of covetousness uh, and its replacement in the human heart with trust in the Heavenly Father's provisions. That's why Jesus' commandments about Going, being disciples going on mission or seem to be so austere, take no supplies, pack no money, rely totally upon the provision uh, of God. Uh, grace gives what is commanded. And as giving what is commanded uh, in the uh, Holy Spirit works the conversion uh, of the disciples step by step along the Exodus way. That's great, Dad. I, you know, until you were talking about that, I hadn't seen clearly that there's this this double plot unfolding, which is is us as as the readers are learning who are the objects of God's saving grace. But also there are the the disciples, apostles, the seventy two. That's another one unique to Luke, who are being trained in how to do this ministry. And of course, that's going to be the the whole topic of Acts is is what does apostolic ministry actually look like? But here is where the you know the first rank of um, uh, apostolic messengers are learning how to recognize those that Jesus has come for. That's that's a great insight. Good, yeah, and I think that um, much of what uh, is made explicit in the Book of Acts is already present in Luke by way of anticipation. Yes. Sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's go now to the the unique Lucan contributions to Jesus, uh, you know, his uh, um, arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. So what we have here is um, Jesus heals the servant's cut-off ear. They, they all report that story, but here Luke has the ear healed. Um, in Luke alone, Jesus goes on trial before Herod, who we are told happens to be in Jerusalem. Uh, Herod is the um, Roman-authorized ruler of Galilee, but he seems to be in town, probably for the festival and a nice pretense of piety on his part. Uh, I already 
mentioned the daughters of Jerusalem weeping over Jesus. Jesus talks with the other criminals on the cross, and that gives us the famous Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, today you will be with me in paradise. In Matthew and Mark, the criminals are not so friendly to Jesus, but are just angry that he isn't saving all of them. The centurion, after Jesus dies, calls him innocent, but does not call him son of God, um, which is kind of interesting also because son of God was such a resonant term for Roman centurions. You'd think that Luke's supposed Gentile orientation would want to make that point, but he changes it here. And then after the resurrection, we have the road to Emmaus that's unique to Luke and finally his um, distinctive ascension story. Matthew also has an ascension story. Um but in Luke's case, uh, this is this is the only point. The, the literal high point is when um, Jesus' followers worship Jesus. All along, they've been worshiping God, but it's only on the Mount of Ascension that they worship Jesus. So kind of the, uh, the apotheosis is complete. This is the point at which they know for certain that Jesus truly is God who has come to them, and, and therefore they are able to worship him. And then there's this uh, hint, you know, uh, the, the sequel, <laughs> Jesus part two, he's back. And, uh, but he's not, it'll be the Holy Spirit who comes instead of Jesus in, in Acts. So uh, what of those would you like to particularly pull out and discuss? Well, I think the, the one that always interests me so much is the cry of dereliction and then the centurion's um, pronouncement. I think listeners may recall that when we discussed the Gospel of Mark, uh, this event was literarily for Mark the Apocalypse, the revelation of the true identity of crucified Jesus uh, as the Son of God is put on the lips of the executioner. Wow, what a wild twist that is, isn't it? Uh, it's an apocalyptic revelation. It's not a human insight. It's it's a revelation. Truly, this is Son of God. The centurion cries out. Uh, it's apocalypse, not insight. Uh, but I think by the time uh, Luke is reading the Gospel of Mark, the crisis in which Mark was written has long since passed over. Uh, that crisis was the impending destruction of Jerusalem, uh, as we discussed uh, in the episodes on Mark. And this is now faded into past history. Uh, and so the, the import of having the centurion say the, of the dying Jesus, truly this was the Son of God, from Luke's point of view, would be totally redundant. It's, it's, it's everything we've read in the Gospel of Luke to this point has already taught us that Jesus is truly the Son of God. In fact, if you look carefully, uh, you could compare the Satan's temptations in the wilderness episode, if truly you are the son of God, do X, Y, and Z. You could see how the mob, uh, the crowd, takes up those very taunts uh, against Jesus in Luke's account of the uh, crucifixion. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross and we will believe you. Uh, so, what was said by Satan in the wilderness is now being the same taunt is sounding against him. Uh, uh, he who, like I said earlier, in great peace of soul, uh, commends himself to God and gives up his spirit, right? And at that point, so it, it would be redundant for the centurion to say, truly, this would, is the Son of God. Everyone can see that Jesus, in his humility and obedience, is acting truly as Son of God. What's more relevant for Luke is to have the centurion call Jesus dikaios, which is translated as innocent, righteous, yeah, translated as innocent, but I think I would prefer the, the translation righteous, that this uh, ob profound obedience of Jesus in his uh, and faith of Jesus, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, uh, in his dying breath, uh, demonstrates uh, his true righteousness uh, for Luke. 
Yeah, it seems that Luke has a particular concern with the the miscarriage of justice on this earth. Maybe for Mark's setting, it's it's the more, as you said, the apocalyptic crisis. But for Luke's setting, it's more important to say that justice has not been done. <laughs> that this is this is the great claim of Rome to uh, to exercise and execute justice, and it's the undoubtedly the concern of the temple officials also. Um, so, yeah. That seems to be the shift of focus more. And there's also the the unique, again, the, the trial before Herod, though Herod seems to be more interested in, in seeing a good show than um, anything religious or judicial one way or another. Right, I actually yeah. think the, the uh, Herod trial scene from Jesus Christ Superstar is probably the best gloss on that, how uh, <laughs> Herod starts taunting him like, come on, Jesus, you know, walk across my swimming pool. And in the end, just turns on him bitterly and disappointed like, like you, you've let me down. Get out of here. Get out of my life. All right. Well, we're coming to the end of our our time. So, um, I, I there are just I guess three three things to wrap up. The first is as we've alluded to before, just as um, Matthew and Mark have a close relationship, it seems that Luke, although also a synoptic, has a relationship to John, or John has a relationship to Luke, different from the other two. So both Luke and John omit the cry of dereliction. They both talk about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, though John deploys the Lazarus character. He's not the righteous man in. Abraham's bosom, but the brother of Mary and Martha, who's called out of the tomb. But the name is the same, which is interesting. Both Luke and John put a lot of emphasis on forgiveness of sins. In fact, quite a bit more than Matthew and Mark do. And finally, um, both Luke and John attribute Judas's betrayal of Jesus to the action of Satan in a way that um, Matthew and Mark don't. Um, so th- those are my observations. What What is your thought about the Luke-John relationship? Yeah, I've noticed the same thing, Sarah, and I do think I think in general that John knows the synoptic tradition and he's not writing uh, solely or exclusively out of his own Johannine tradition, though certainly that's that's also the case, but that he is uh, he is writing John's gospel is writing a theological commentary on the synoptic tradition and most specifically as you pointed out, there are these striking parallels between Luke and John, which incline me to think that uh, the author of John knows the written gospel of Luke. I think that's right. Uh, I was struck by the fact that both Luke and John are very interested in the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I, as When we did our, our Romans and Galatians episode, I realized that for the Apostle Paul, forgiveness of sins is is almost like taken for granted. Like, of course, the Lord God of Israel forgives sins. That's not what's at issue here, um, in a, which is maybe the biggest... Um, I wouldn't say misreading of Luther, of Romans, but uh, Luther is concerned with the forgiveness of sins to a degree that I think is more reflective of Luke and John. Actually, of course, Luke loved, or sorry, Luther loved John very much too. Um, do you think the emphasis on the forgiveness of sins reflects Luke and John just being that much later in the development of the early church, that much after the destruction of the temple? Is it because there is no longer a, a a place to go to, to actually do the rites of atonement. Why do you think that's more important to them and the ransom language is not the way way it is important in, in Mark and Matthew? Well, do we have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we should actually, I'd like to do an episode on the forgiveness of sins at some point, but just, I don't know. Do you have any quick thoughts? I know it's impossibly huge, but give it a try. Yeah. Um, Yes, it is impossibly huge. In one thing, way, I want to say that for Paul and for Mark, uh, the gospel event of Christ is still conceived in in an apocalyptic way, uh, in which uh, Jesus breaks into a strong man's house to bind him up in order that he can plunder his goods, which are the human beings in captivity. The one legitimate hold that Satan has upon his captives is that they are in fact sinners. And as sinners, they cannot enter into the 
presence of the righteous and holy God. Uh, and how does then, for Paul and Mark, how does uh, how does uh, Jesus break the grip uh, of Satan upon those denizens? Well, uh, Paul, I think, basically thinks that it's the righteousness of Christ which uh, trumps the accusation of Satan uh, against the sinners. So it's a power confrontation. It's, it's, it's the righteousness of Christ pitted against the just but tyrannical uh, accusation uh, of Satan armed with the holy law of God against sinners. So it's much more a, a power confrontation. Uh, I think that apocalyptic sense has faded by the time you get to Luke, and which, which is why the remembrance of Jesus' forgiving sins uh, emerges, emerges very much to kind of fill that, that theological space. Uh, Jesus forgives sins. Well, I always say to students, Okay, Jesus releases you from your sins. Where did the sins go? Is it a wave of a magic? Is it a, is it a wave of a magic wand? Poof, poof! I disappear your sins. The, the sins are something real in the world. Sins are injuries that have been done to God and neighbor. And when Jesus releases you from your sins, well, okay, fine. You can say that, Jesus. But then, what happens to the sins? And I think the drama of the whole story of Jesus is that in the end, in his uh, suffering and death for Luke, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, if indeed that's genuinely Luke. Uh, but something like the it is... The sentiment is, at least, yeah. The sentiment is Luke's. Uh, somehow Jesus ha has demonstrated his right to forgive sins uh, by his obedience up to uh, death, death upon a cross. Uh, and in that way, uh, there is a, a righteousness established. Jesus has the right to forgive sins because he has lived and died this way. I think that's helpful. That's we'll, we'll take up the topic more, but I think that's a good starting point. I also just wanted to note quickly commonalities between Luke and Paul. A, a lot of um, energy goes into the differences between Luke and Paul, especially in Acts reporting of Paul's preaching versus Paul's epistles. But what I guess really struck me this time through was that um, for Luke, the word charis or grace is very important. I did not realize this, but the word charis does not appear in Matthew or Mark at all. Uh, Luke introduces it. And of course, that is a major Pauline word. In fact, he probably coined its usage as it appears um, at all in the New Testament. And therefore, the Lucan literature came from the Pauline use of charis. And also that although Paul is not as focused on the forgiveness of sins, of course, he is very focused on faith and faith as being the, the connection point between God's grace and human salvation or healing. And Luke repeatedly uses the language of uh, sozo in Greek uh, to save to heal, the, the two meanings are elided. They, they both function in the same way. So um, Luke repeatedly has Jesus say, your faith has saved you or your faith has healed you. Uh, I think the, the double meaning is deliberate in, right. in the Luke and usage. So, um, so even though, again, Luke has more on the forgiveness of sins and Paul has less, they definitely have grace and faith strongly in common between them. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think that this is a case where you just have to allow um, the diversity of uh, theological understandings between the New Testament writers, and not, I mean, the generation, uh, previous generations of historical criticism were almost uh, uh, obsessively uh, uh, focused on specifying the unique particular theology not just of every author but of every uh, of every uh, document of every text indeed of every passage 
And and so you have Humpty Dumpty who sat on a wall and had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again <laughs> because it had fallen apart into a, a gazillion different particular meanings. Uh, and I think in, in a way that's very helpful for understanding a passage in, in, in detail, uh, but it causes us or it inclines us not to see the deep affinities between these various motifs. So I would say, you know, forgiveness of sins or justification by the faith of Christ are these contrary ways of understanding the Christ event? No, I would say they're complementary. And it really what happens is that we theologians have to prioritize among these motifs and then organize them in a way that they cohere. Well, I guess my, my interest was more just that uh, against the the assumption that Luke completely misinterpreted Paul in Acts, it seems to me the incredible emphasis on grace and faith is is indication that Luke learned very important lessons from Paul that he carried into his, his gospel and apostolic history. Right. And if it's true that Paul's doctrines like Marx, to a large degree, still reflect the apocalyptic framework. And that with Luke and John, even beginning with Matthew, you are fading away from that acute sense of apocalyptic crisis. Uh, And then, so these uh, themes of the confrontation, uh, the power power confrontation, and so forth, uh, give way to the more uh, forensic juridical question, uh, how do I stand before the holy God but forgiveness of sin Jesus brings? All right. Well, my third and final topic was going to be the historical Jesus, but we're over an hour and there's no way we can probably talk about that in under an hour. So maybe sometime in the future, we'll we'll revisit this uh, issue of the, the quest for the historical Jesus. If that's all right with you. It's all right with me. I think I'd just like to conclude by saying, take the time just to sit down and read the Gospel of Luke and see what a beautiful piece of writing it is. Uh, If you may remember when you were my confirmation student many, many years ago, it was (laughs) my regular practice to have the confirmation students read the Gospel of Luke and write an essay about it just because it was the most accessible uh, of the Gospels. Yes, and I remember you uh, preferred my fellow confirmands, Kara's essay on um, the the lost parables to mine, which was already attempting to be a dogmatic treatise on the real presence in the Lord's Supper. So that was probably <laughs> proleptic of something. <laughs> I don't recall that Take your word for it. <laughs> Next time on the show, we will be talking about Neni Lava, the prophetess of Madagascar. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.